Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Peter Ricks is an Australian music industry veteran who has spent his life working in and around the music business in Australia. From managing artists like Marsha Hines, John English, Hush and Billy Field to 14 years as the original producer and chairman of the ARIA Music Awards. Along the way, Peter has made a lot of friends and it's some of these friends that you will meet over the course of this series. They are the success stories, the survivors, the maniacs who helped steer the Australian music business from the 70s onwards and somehow they're all still relevant and thriving today. The series so far has been a ride of big moments and big stories and this time is no exception. Here's Peter to introduce this episode's guest. Few practitioners in the art of music have taken the path of this old friend of mine a seriously curious soul who has over the years played many roles, from agent to manager to venue proprietor to music publisher to recording company to magazine publisher, and after many years and no doubt many questions of himself as to why he chose the path of music, finally the heavens sort of opened up and global success rained down on him. A very well-deserved result from one of the Australian music business's most beloved sons. Welcome from the inside, John Woodruff, and good morning, Woody. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pete. It's a bit over the top, but yeah. Did you like that intro? I did. It was really good, thank yeah. You. Did I cover... Is there anything I actually missed in that? Yeah. That was the sort of point you got into? Yeah, no, you, no I, think, I think you were <coughs> you were just fine you in, in the overall scheme of things. So let's start with a dive into... Adelaide. When I when I first met you, you were set up in this gorgeous house in the uh, suburbs of Adelaide, on the other side of the Torrens, in a place called the Sphere Organisation, with a lot of very interesting men. And, and when I first arrived with Hush, I actually thought, shit, these guys are remarkably together compared to what it was like to go to Melbourne and put up with um, Premier Artists. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same thing in Melbourne. <coughs> um, no, the, the um, I remember Hush came in and played the, uh, the the island in the middle of a lake in yeah. uh, in in the park, um, which got interesting for yes. a moment or two. More kids were in the water than they were in the park. <laughs> they but, were swimming to the band. Yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. No, but um, we it was um, uh, I guess it started a little bit before that because uh, I met uh, my wife, uh, who at that point for a long time was my girlfriend. And uh, she was a very independent-minded lady who decided that, you know, it was her terms or the highway. And basically, she was already going overseas with her girlfriend and that was it, mm-hmm. And uh, which I didn't believe. And what, to leave you? Yes, to leave me <laughs> on my own. And, um, but she had some friends. I was at university and she had some friends in a band. And I had um, been a aspiring folk singer for a while and I thought... I did not know that. Didn't you know that? No. Well, I, I mean, I, mate, I played for a stack of three with maple syrup and cream quite often, you know what I mean? It was like... Oh, goodness. So it was basically... Um, so it was basically, uh, I thought... And they were looking for a manager and I thought, well, they're good friends of hers and uh, I'll, t- I'll take it. If that gets me closer, I'll take it. And how old were you? Oh, 20... 
22, 23. I just finished national service. And and at, at uni in Adelaide? At uni in Adelaide, yeah. Well, because they pay you to go back into uni again, which you can't really miss, really. The richest kid on campus, you know. So basically... Um, I took off with uh, with this band, but unfortunately, they, they were fortunately or unfortunately for them, they were a Christian band and they were lovely people. But you know, um, I got sacked. I got fired in favour of Jesus, direction Jesus, management God. I, I thought on the poster it looked better than mine. That is a slight indication of the rest of your career, really, isn't it? <laughs> it was really. So they time to so go to the devil. Were, John. They were the first one to fire me. Yeah, yeah. I was of the long string of bands that fired me. So basically. Um, so basically, yeah, I, I, I managed them and, and uh, fortunately my wife came back and agreed to marry me. And, and, and what, were we still early 70s here or? Uh, look, mate, any reference to dates here should be kept as vague as we possibly can because it, okay. it's been a long time, as you pointed out. You Early said on. 50 years. It's okay. close, yeah. So this fear organisation, though, had you and a bloke called Bob Lott or, and, and really Adelaide at Became sort of this little bubbling. Yeah, it was. It was Bob Lott was really running it. He was. He was the guy who had the ideas, um, and he was. Uh, he was a, a, an aspiring trad jazz player, um, and he uh, and he he ran an agency in Adelaide, um, and he wanted to put together something that was a little more current, and so we sort of ran uh, the management company, and we ended up with about about 15 bands, which is around about break-even point in the Adelaide market at that point in time. And you were agents for them? Or no, we were the, 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 he was agents for them. We were managers. Right. Um, and, <clears throat> and two of those bands ended up through a series of changes to end up being the Angels and Cold Chisel, so it was sort of... And they, yeah. that was the uh, that was the formative time you're talking about. Yeah, or Moonshine Jug and String Band turned into the Angels and... Cold Chisel were always Cold Chisel. Yeah, and uh, and Ray Hearn was in there. Ray Hearn was the uh, was a, a really interesting guy. He was a very very earnest young man, and he still is. He manages Brian Eno these days. I know. And he uh, and he run, runs the biggest independent record label in Japan, um, uh, including Beggar's Banquet. So he's got a Dell on independent label. Try keeping up with that demand. And basically, he he. Um, he was a really good friend of mine, but he was rodeoing for Cush at the time. Which was Jeff Duff's band. Jeff Duff band, yeah. Right. And that was in Adelaide. That was in Adelaide. Yeah. And okay. then he, that wasn't hard enough for him. Anything in life that doesn't have a big enough mountain for Ray, Ray's just one of these wonderful human beings who, who wants to always have a challenge, always be climbing a mountain. So we'll follow Ray and you to Sydney in a minute, but the Moonshine Jug and String Band, again, my... My memory is of going to these God, forgive me, but these God-forsaken Adelaide, uh, South Australian country towns like Port Lincoln, and with with having had you guys book these dates, and the Moonshine Jug and String Band came along, and they're they're sitting backstage having chats to me it was. Doc Neeson, who it seems to turn out you were sharing a house with. Yeah, we shared a house for a while when he was a student. He was doing an honours degree in filming and drama and he became a really close friend and, and, a, and a, one of the most um, graphically artistic people that I ever got involved with. He, he, uh, he just cared about language and cared about poetry and cared about the muse and, you know, so. And then tell me how that, 
the moonshine, et cetera, et cetera, became the angels. Where was that? Uh, he, he was um, writing voluminous pages of, of, of seemingly meaningless um, lyrics, um, all of which were the foundations of songs like After the Rain and do you know what I mean? All those yeah, wonderful yeah. sort of lyrics that that guy wrote. And, and he would just keep doing it all the time. And he was doing it in the jug band as well, but he couldn't work out why the band didn't have a tougher edge to it. And, and so he, he bludgeoned them into playing electric guitars rather than acoustic guitars. And, and they were the Brewster Brothers in the yeah, band? Yeah, they were oh. the Brewster Brothers. Good rhythm guitarists, but they, there was, a, there was a, a period there where we were playing residencies all over Adelaide and packing them out, you know, 1,500 people a night when we played, mm. and we took the whole door. So that was the sort of foundation for another whole formula that came along. And at that point... Um, uh, then they started playing electric instruments and, uh, and the 1500 went to 300 um, because they couldn't really play them. And, mm. and so we decided to be a... I decided they should be a 50s cover band until they could play well enough for the 50s and then a 60s cover band until they could play well enough for the 60s and then they finally and did the, came is of it, age. Again, I, is the story correct that... You put them on the road. Oh no, you put them on the road with Hush, but you put them on the road with ACDC as well in those days. And the were they influences? Do you think? Uh, look, we we it was a it was a turning point because I was trying to get the band signed. Uh, I bought them to Sydney in, a, in an FE Holden that I hired from somewhere with a trailer and the marshals in the back to try and get them signed in Sydney. Uh, an esteemed A&R guy from EMI who's still around, so I won't name him, uh, recorded an obscure song called Am I Ever Going to See Your Face Again with them, decided it was a piece of crap and uh, and uh, refused to sign them. Right. So at that point I oh, went... Definitely. I went, yeah, no, that's, that's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. So basically I then went, okay, um, I need to come back and get somebody else to look seriously at this band. And I was having trouble with that and we were doing a date in Wyala, Port Piri, Port Augusta, Port Augusta Town Hall um, with ACDC and the Angels. Um, it might have been the key song. I can't remember where they were in that, yeah, what in that. mode they were in. But, but, um, and we were using a promoter from, uh, who was the sales manager for 5AU in Wyala and he... I'm a bit fascinated by radio, so I've got all the cool signs I still remember. But he, he, um, he <coughs> absconded with the door. Um, from the gig? From the gig. And I was left with no money, uh, a band, ACDC, on a, on a Pioneer bus, which they travelled in, no accommodation and no beer money. And... And the Hell's Angels trying to get into the gig. So I had a bit on my plate going on trying to sort this out. Mm. And um, Michael Browning, who managed ACDC, wasn't there at the time. So I had to deal with them. They offered to go over the road to the Terminus Hotel and put a shoebox out and earn money for their beer. And, uh, and I thought that, that would, this would be an interesting idea in, uh, in Port, Port Augusta. Augusta. Um, and so I sent my biggest roadie to Wyala which is a fair drive, mm. to find this guy uh, and, uh, and remove the money from his possession, which he did, and bought it back and gave it to ACDC, at which point we became inseparable. Close personal friends. Oh, inseparable. Yeah. That, to, them, that was, to them, that was the best thing that anybody could, you know, that was, that was honourable. Mm. And, well, it was. 
I'm not, you know. So they ended up um, saying, well, you know, we're going to take him down to Sydney and we're going we're gonna to get Alberts to look after him. So, so there, was a, there was a little rainbow of, of imp- input into the Alberts deal from the band, from ACDC. Oh, absolutely, the whole rainbow of input. ACD, Alberts would not have been aware of it were it not for that. So, so basically then, then it's really... It's really George Young who, yeah, bless him, who moulded that. Yeah. So, uh, before we roll on here, there was a moment when you uh, gently rang me and asked me if I would babysit the band for you while you told me you were going off on a little holiday with your dear beloved wife Christine to go ski, and and I think I did a very bad job of babysitting your band, but the one thing that has always resonated and that always made me so incredibly fond of Doc was how, in, how, how much there were two people involved in his life, in his world, that there was this gentle Irish soul and then as soon as he hit that stage, he became this raging lunatic and it was so incredibly well done that I, I, I used to sit at the back of the room wondering whether or not anybody actually got what was going on. He was far more talented than I, I feel people Yeah, I, th- I think there were a lot of people who got it. There was a hardcore that got it. Mm. Um, but, um, but he, I mean, his real talent, in my opinion, was his ability to, to have the I mean, you got to have the muse yeah. and to, to work in this business to really be good in, in this in the rock and roll business you, you besides determination hard work and whatever if you don't have the muse then why would anybody want to listen to you you know it's that they want a piece of what you've got you know uh, yeah. So was that in the lyrics or in the l- in the lyrics and and the personality the stage personality but in the lyrics mainly it's mm. in it's in the music it's in the it's with, with all artists, you know, that, that for me was the secret to any artist that I ever okay. got fascinated by. They either, they, you either have the muse or you don't. And, and, and it's really simple because all of the people, no, a lot of the people that I was trying to deal with in A&R to get my bands signed didn't, they were analysing the songs to see if they were anything like what was currently getting played on radio, which was the necessary evil at that point in time. Or the necessary god because I loved radio, but you know it was like it was the, you know, that was the thing that they were interested in. Mm. And it had really not a lot to do with the muse, mm. with the, you know, if you if you didn't get, it's a long way to the top. If you didn't get the tongue in cheek nature of that song, then you would have just looked at it and gone, well, there's nothing like this on radio. We're not going to sign the band. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like uh, you know. I, I, that's what I'm trying. Well, to... Well, the, the story, the storyline in these things comes as a part of the DNA of the band, or the or the the writers, the performers, whatever you. Yeah, call them. That, exactly. That, that's the journey, isn't yeah. it? The, but they're the real ones, as against the. Um, yeah, but the it's very, it's very and 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 the, and the ironic part about it is, it's easier to find them mm. because you don't have to go through any of this second guessing stuff. You either get it or you don't. So, so. You know, I've passed on as many great bands as I've actually um, I've actually taken on because uh, because I didn't get it. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not you know that just means I'm wrong for them. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means don't come with me because I have to marry you, and we have to go through an awful lot of rubbish together before we're going to get anywhere. So mm, tell me about it. So then, uh, your 
you've left Adelaide, Sphere, the, that world that you were in there, you've you've moved out of there, brought Christine with you to Sydney? or was it- Yeah, I moved to Sydney first um, for a while um, and, and we were with... Um, uh, one of Gadinsky's agencies. Gadinsky pretty much ran the business in those days out of Melbourne. Mm. And, and, he, and he teamed up with Chris Murphy in Sydney to form Solo Premier. Premier. Yep. Um, and, and whoever controlled the live income for my bands controlled their life because they were live bands. And so without the live work, the, the, there was no income. The, the records were going to come a lot later. And so basically, um, yeah, we, we joined up with them and and they represented us, but it all got very silly. So did did the um, the angels in Sydney did it coincide with cultures were coming to Sydney as well? Was it all one? Uh, you know, well, by the time we, I came to Sydney, you know, I wasn't actually looking after cultures at that no, point. No. I'd left Adelaide and and or I wasn't involved in looking. I never actually seriously looked after cultures. I was associated with them because when we went to, it's all part of that. Chris Murphy solo premier idea mm. um, because Chris Murphy, um, who managed in excess eventually for anybody who doesn't know who Chris Murphy is, he um, uh, he had an agency here which he'd set up from his mother's club agency or his father, hence MMA, MMA. Mark Murphy and Associates. Mm. And he... Um, and he was, he had um, a bunch of really good people working for him. Rod Willis was one of those people and Rod was looking after Cold Chisel. Right. And so, I don't know, probably that's the next step in the yeah, equation no. really is. So, so Rod, Rod, who I had come back to Australia because he had been, he'd worked with a band, an English band called Savoy Brown. Yeah. And in that journey, you and he and... Ray Hearn, who I guess must have moved to Sydney by then as well, um, at some point d- decided that what you needed was your own agency. Mm. Well, it, it was the fact that, that, that Solo Premier and Premier in Melbourne controlled everything. Mm. Uh, there was no marketing. There was no, there was no, um, there was no intelligence in the way that the live work was, was handled. There was, you know, you would play two gigs next door to one another in two nights and, and you know, and there was a column in the book with a, you know, this is a $2,000 act. Didn't matter how big the venue was or what the ticket cost, this is a $2,000 act. I mean, that's how it was going. So we went, okay, we need to go independent here and do this ourselves. So we had this wonderful scenario where we walked around the offices in North Sydney um, dropping little notes on all the staff's desks going, meet us in the Great Escape wine bar down the road and we're all get, we'll all get together and we'll have a little chat. Mm. And we ended up with Rod and we ended up with a guy called Richard McDonald who yes. was looking after Rabbit, I think, in those days. Right. And, uh, and Jennifer Elliott who was just the wonderful – Chris's office manager at Solo. She's a terrific girl too. Yeah, she's a terrific girl. And we ended up in that – well, she was the backbone of the organisation. She was what held the four maniacs together. But So we went and formed Dirty Pool. It can be fit for our – our listeners, I, I, I'm not sure that they'll completely understand, but there's a depth of significance to Dirty Pool in the music business in Australia, in, in this country, because it still was the 70s, wasn't it? And the, the, no the, dates. No dates, sorry. Well, it was the 70s, Roddy. It, it, was, it was sort of getting towards the end. But 
how how it's important for, in your words to define what you actually did to the business that had never been done before. Well, I mean, we just wanted to be in charge of our own destiny. You know, I, I can I can remember the night it happened. We were playing at Maroubra Seals Club with the Angels. It was licensed for five hundred. I think we had eight hundred in there or a thousand in there. Four nights in a row at six bucks a ticket, you know, and we were paid $500 for the week. No, sorry, I'm wrong, $2,000 for the week. Paid $500 a night for four nights. And <clears throat> and that's just criminal. Mm. And, and, and Somebody made a lot of money. Well, between the club and the agency and whatever was – I don't know where it went. I have no idea, but I do know that that, that was the thing that ignited me and I just went, oh, we need to sort this out. Because bands need to be they, – they need to be marketed properly like any professional would. You, you need to be able to play for the ticket that you're worth. You need to be, have a good promotion. So we then – so then I, I got together with Ray Hearn, who was the other guy who really pushed this idea. And by then we'd just picked up flowers, which became Ice House. And, and we said, we're off. We're off. We're on our own. Um, we moved into a little flat down in Bondi together um, and we put in some more telephone lines and we got Richard to come around every day and be the agent. And we launched, I think Vince Lovegrove was doing the media, was doing the press, and we, and we, just, we just launched in one day and we'd visited every single promoter in the country within the next three days in every pub in Australia and went and every publican and said, we're here, we'll sign a contract we won't charge you any guarantee, we'll take the door, we'll do the marketing, you don't have to lift a finger and we'll give you a dollar a head. And, uh, and they all jumped at it and said, now... No, so you, you mean no risk for the... For no, no risk for the publican, but the point is, no, no risk for the venue, but the point is that, 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 that they were sick of being having, having bands blown out on them, having deals upped and downed and going sideways, they, they, just, they just leapt at it. And there was, there was a few that, that were talked out of it because they wouldn't get anything else except our acts. Um, but it, it, became, it became a whole system, where the, where, to answer your question more directly, it became a whole system whereby the artists were only played the venues that they could fill and they only played the venues that we promoted and they took pretty much the whole door. They took about 80% or 90% of the door. Which is really the template now for how most modern touring acts yeah. travel the world. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, we were saying to them, look, um, you know, if you come with us, then we'll guarantee you that we'll do the promotion. We don't actually even want you to do the promotion mm. because we don't want to cross it over. We're playing on Reesby Workers one night and we're playing the Bondi Lifesaver the next night and we really don't want the whole city covered in both those posters. So we'll work out what suburbs we're drawing from. And we'll market it that way. Yeah. So you don't overexpose the band and at the same time get different audiences. And we get a full house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was essential that it sold out. Mm. And and so slowly but surely we ended up with a stable of, I think we ended up with pretty much all the major bands except Midnight Oil and, and In Excess. So basically, and, and we brought their managers in with us as well mm. so that we could control what was going was on. Was it a cooperative? Would you have called it a cooperative? No, it was a sort of a cooperative. It was, you know, if you could ever say that people as, as fanatical as me and Ray could end up in a cooperative, yeah, it was as close as we'd ever get to that. John Woodruff. 
In a moment, Peter and John look at a key moment in Australia's rock music history, the Narara Music Festival in 1983. For John, it wasn't just about getting the festival up and running. It was also an all-time classic gig for the Angels, with their performance taking on a life of its own after the festival was long done. It's now, forgive me for dates, but it's now 1983, January 1983. Jesus, Peter. Sorry. Go on. Well, you'll never forget this, John, because you're in the in the open fields of old Sydney town. Right. Um, at Narara 83, a celebration of Australian music to which you and I were in, integral with a number of other wonderful people. Um, and the Angels destroyed Narara. Yeah, it was, Narara was a, uh, Narara was a really interesting experiment because by this point we'd been going for a long time, or a fair while as Dirty Pool, and we were fiercely independent and wouldn't have anything to do with the establishment. Um, and, and so um, by that I mean Melbourne, the other side of town. Yeah. We call Melbourne the other side of town. Wouldn't have anything to do with the other side of town. So basically we were um, – uh, when the Narara Cooperative, which was, uh, people were put together and everybody bought shares. I think we all, pay, we all decided on we got a share apiece or whatever it was. Um, and it involved most of the major players in the music business. Um, and most of the major acts came with them. And so basically, um, and, and very much involved this place, very much involved Triple M and Muir because he was a real driver behind. He, he saw that as being the image of Triple M. It was the start of the full-on Australian rock thing. He wanted his posters up Parramatta Road. He wanted, to, he wanted to be as close as he could to it and he got very close to it. So all of that played into a scenario where... Um, where then um, we decided that it wasn't being promoted terribly well because we weren't selling lots of tickets. So we bought one of the two shares that one of the other shareholders had, so we ended up with two shares, and on the grounds that we promoted it, and so we went after it. So basically the event, except for the fact that we hadn't allowed for two minutes for every car to pull into the car park and it blocked the Pacific Highway for about 10 miles because we hadn't worked out how we searched for the booze before we, whatever. It was a a learning experience for all of us. us. Um, And and also we hadn't really banked on the fact that that some of the individuals involved who shall remain nameless would be um, in the condition they would be at the end end of a three-day festival. the, there was, um, excuse me to interrupt, there was the drowning in the oh, dam. Oh, yeah, that was sad. That was sad. Somebody, somebody fell into the dam. But, but basically, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people walked through screen doors and caravans and things like that. It was all very... Chaos was rained backstage. And, and so basically... But, but in the middle of all of that, Doc had decided that he was leaving the band, which was the first of... Probably 20 times he decided he was leaving the band. But, you know, it was, it was all part of that um, adrenaline mm. that he had to have to do what he did on stage. So, you know, if, there w- if it was all getting too comfortable, I don't know why I'm so drawn to people who are always making things uncomfortable, but I seem to be. Creative and, people do that. Yeah. Well, so he was like, he was, you know, he, he, was, he said, that's it, I'm, I'm over, we're going. Uh, but I really want to film this event because it'll be the last show we ever do together. And, but I don't want to just do it on video. I want to do it on, on, on film. 
and and I want Bernie Cannon to do it because he was the best at that point in Australia, and he'd he'd done. You know, Bernie not, was the, not, G- the, the he, ABC he, guy. GTK. He was the ABC GTK guy. Yeah. I want him to do it. I want Eric Robinson's twenty four track studio. I, I want to do the proper job, and I'll pay for it. Um, and so um, so we we got in the cameras and we did it and filmed it, and and it was a. A, one of their great shows. It was one of their moments of triumph, and, and the and the crowd was perfect for them. It was they were all drunk. The mm. place went off, and so basically, um, then Doc ended up with worth telling the whole story because Doc then ended up with a lot of fifteen mil film um, and a lot of audio, and no way to produce it. No way to get this thing out, like an hour and a half, two hours of this stuff. Right. Multi-camera feeds, multiple you know, syncing, all of that carry-on, which in, in those days was a bit in its infancy. So he he, he was the instigator of yeah, the oh filming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Bernie did it. Yeah, but, quite. But then, so I came back to Muir, Rod Muir, and said, look, mate, you know, we've got this footage. It's amazing. I mean, some seriously good footage here. It was a great show. We need to produce it. We need to get some funds together to put it together. So he went to Jay Walter Thompson's, a big advertising agency in Sydney here, and said, um, and then Doc went, went in after him and said, are you guys interested in some of your talent getting involved in putting this together and, and putting this whole special together? And they said, yeah, we'd love to do it. So they got in there and they gave a lot of free time and studio time and stuff to, to perfect this and shine it up. And then, then we had to get it shown and Muir went, don't worry, watch me. So he then went to Channel 9 and said, um, how much does it cost for two hours of your time between 8 and 10 on Saturday night? I, w- I want to buy two hours of the television station. Uh, and they said, X, Y, Z, and he said, fine, take it. So then he came back to the poor people who worked in here and said, okay, you're not just selling radio tonight, you're selling television as well for these two hours on Saturday, whatever it is. So they sold all of the television time and the radio time. Which was a simulcast. Which was a simulcast, yeah. 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 I remember those days. Yeah. So that was how that came off. Peter Ricks is in conversation with manager, amongst his many other job titles, John Woodruff. In part two, they look at the two next big bands in his career and their rise to stardom, the Baby Animals and the two friends from Brisbane that went on to become global superstars, Savage Garden. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.